Hello everyone, fellow paranormal aficionados. Welcome back to Haunted 518. This week I am drinking... Hopworks Abominable Winter Ale. Hopworks packs its abominable winter ale with Cascade, Centennial, Chinook, and Simcoe hops. But the name is almost a tease. IPA is nowhere on the label, but you should prepare your taste buds for the hoppiest winter ale you've ever encountered. So, um... Ooh, yes, that is hoppy. Uh, feels like a crisp, wintry, hoppy ale. Definitely could see this look while I'm either standing on, see, drinking this while I'm either standing on a front porch looking out at a snowy landscape or uh, looking out a window perhaps, fireside, definitely seems like maybe like a day after, uh, after a long day of being outside, a good one to end the day with for sure. So this week we're going to be in this Cobleskill Schoharie Central Bridge area. And I thought I would start out with the the more infamous, the most infamous, I would say, place in Cobleskill, and we'll work our way around. So the first place we're going to start at is the Bull's Head Inn, and that is located on uh, 105 Park Place, and that's in Cobleskill. So George Furster came to New York State, Schoharie Valley in 1752 and built a home near the Cobleskill Creek. His house was open to both white settlers and local Indians, but two of the latter became embroiled in an argument and one stabbed the other to death in the Furster house. Marauding Indians twice burned the building during the revolution and twice Furster rebuilt it with his own hands. The last time, however, he made it into a tavern and later sold it to a German immigrant, Lambert lawyer who turned it back into a home. During lawyer's tenancy, the building burned again. Around 1802, Seth Wakeman rebuilt and enlarged the house and then reopened it as the Bull's Head Inn. The inn was also used as a town hall, a courthouse, and a public meeting place before 1839. The Dutch and German farmers were too frugal to spend much time or money in taverns, so Wakeman converted the building back into a home again, which it remained until the 1960s. Then Monty Allen opened it again as the Bulls Head Inn, hoping to serve the steady influx of tourists who were rediscovering Schoharie County's old forts and museums, and the farms of America's Patriot founders. Some of those founders may still be there. John Stacy, whose home it was after 1920, has been a very heavy drinker, prompting his wife to join the local chapter of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Apparitions started in 1764 when Allen created a dining room and bar in Mrs. Stacy's old bedroom. Waitresses and bartenders sometimes saw a woman in a long white filmy gown, perhaps a nightgown, walking through the tables, chairs, and walls of the room. From time to time, salt and pepper shakers disappeared, and pieces of silverware rose from the tables and flew at the bar. Then, as today, then as today, the ghost's likely identi identity is Mrs. Stacy. One night around 1981, Jeff Patterson, the bartender, sat sipping a nightcap after he closed the bar. Suddenly, I saw lights on the wall, as though Venetian blinds were opening and closing several times. Then I saw what seemed to be a figure sitting in the corner of the dining room. It appeared to be a woman in a white nightgown. Mrs. Stacy showed her displeasure many times after that. Napkins and plates sometimes became airborne and strange unlocatable sounds were heard. Lavatory faucets suddenly turned themselves on. Swivel chairs mysteriously revolved by themselves. 
Kathy Vetter, manager of the restaurant in the early 1990s, recalled a terrified customer who saw his table's butter dish levitate. Oh my gosh. <laughs> she also told of seeing a woman's reflection behind her in a restroom mirror, but when she turned to identify the woman, no, nobody was there. At various times after closing, bartenders and staff in the recently built cellar pub have heard footsteps upstairs, but have never found anyone. On a recent Super Bowl Sunday, while the staff relaxed in front of the pub's television, they heard loud footsteps upstairs. Several went up to look, but though a thorough search revealed nobody. A former hostess named Nancy was speechless when an old hand-cranked telephone on the wall began ringing. No one was near it to turn the crank. It wasn't hooked up to any outside line. It was just a decoration. Maybe Mrs. Stacy was calling with a temperance message for the bar patrons. Rose, a morning cleaner, said, When I'm cleaning in the pub, I often feel someone or something pass by. Just a little breeze, but there are no windows open downstairs. I also feel like I'm being watched continuously while I'm there, as if someone is standing right behind me, but I've never seen who it is. The current owner, Bob Young, said, I soft-pedaled the ghost stories for the first dozen years I owned the place. I didn't want my restaurant to get an unsavory reputation, but events continue and the word spread. Then I had my own experiences. One night, working in the pub, I moved the, to the corner of the room. I felt a heavy hand grip my shoulder, but I couldn't see it. I wasn't frightened, but that was proof enough for me that an unseen presence is here. The bar sits today below the spot where we think the Indian was stabbed over 200 years ago. When a previous owner did some renovation in the first floor's north dining room, he discovered a series of cupboards hidden within the wall, and in them he found an old hatchet or tomahawk, swords, and things like that. The place is full of history. One night we had a wine tasting party. A man I know brought his wife, and about midway through the party, she left to go to the woman's room. She returned with a smile saying, Gee, Bob, you sure encourage people to think about history. How did you get the idea of putting a costume woman as an attendant in the restroom? I just smiled. We had no woman in historic dress, but if I'd told her that, I guess I'd lost another customer. <laughs> Today, guests and staff talk openly about the strange events. A few years ago, some people came to shoot a video along the street outside. The video taped not only the Bulls Head Inn, but also the other old buildings on the block. I haven't seen the finished product yet, but they phoned and told me the videotape showed ghost-like figures in front of just about every building along the street, Bob said. The story of Mrs. Stacy now appears in books and on hauntings websites. Students from the State University of, at Copleskill make the inn a regular haunt, quote-unquote, almost as soon as they arrive in town. And many others from outside Schoharie County go there seeking a good meal in some unscheduled entertainment, if the spirits are so inclined. Um, so I definitely want to go get a drink there. That's fascinating. Um, it's a beautiful building. I'll definitely uh, post a photo of it. So next, I wanted to move over to another haunted location in Cobleskill, and that's Grapevine Farms, another beautiful building. And that's on 2373 State Route 7. At Grapevine Farms in Cobleskill, there have been numerous paranormal and unusual happenings. The farm was built in 1850 and was a working farm. Most considered it just a normal building, excuse me, until the new owners took over in October of 2002 and made it into a gift shop, bistro, and wine cellar. Numerous customers throughout the past 17 years claimed to have seen and felt many apparitions and heard 
unusual sounds which they recorded. Many believe that David Hiltz and his wife, who are buried on the premises, are regular spirits on the second floor. The famed psychic Katie Manning recently made clear to the owners that on the second floor was a distinctive sound of voices of the past. She also noted the sound of footsteps on the vintage staircase. So take a chance and visit Grapevine Farms to feel the aura of the family that once lived here. At Grapevine Farms, you can enjoy shopping on all three floors, dining in the bistro that serves lunch daily from 11 a.m. to 3, and you can indulge in delicious homemade cookies and stop for a visit in the wine cellar, where daily complimentary tastings are offered. You may just need one after a visit, especially if you're lucky enough to catch a glimpse or hear the ghostly children running in the halls. <laughs> So next we're going to move on to like the greater Schoharie Camp County. Um, not ter Schoharie is not terribly far from Cobleskill, so we're staying pretty much right in that immediate area. So the next place we're going to talk about is the Old Stone Fort Museum. In 2010, Sci-Fi's Ghost Hunters failed to debunk claims of ghost sightings footsteps on the otherwise empty second floor, screams possibly from a long ago childbirth death. But the jury is still out on their authenticity. What's clear is that the building has had a long history from the Revolutionary War Fort to church to Civil War Armory and that the museum collection adds even more chilling tales. One of the oldest artifacts on display at the museum, and one that the Ghost Hunters crew suggested may be associated with some of the paranormal activity, is a fire engine built before the birth of George Washington. It's one of a pair brought over from England in 1731 for fire, fighting fires in Manhattan, possibly including the Great Fire of New York of 1776, which burnt down most of the city. Almost as old are a set of miniature chests that once belonged to five-year-old twins who sought shelter within stockade walls when the fort was attacked in 1780. These tiny chests would have held all of the girls' possessions as their farming family sought protection from loyalist sympathizers seeking to disrupt rebel food supplies. Strangely enough, even though they moved away when they married out, both chests made their way back to the fort independently. Children have been known to scream when they see the creepy doll that belonged to Evelyn McMahon in 1918. Kept captive in glass case on the museum's second floor where several visitors claim they've seen or heard ghosts. It's surrounded by cabinets holding collections ranging from jeweled buttons to a gory knife collection brought back from the Philippines by Major Abram L. Haynes. The next place is the Dr. Best House and Medical Exhibit. Two generations of the Best family, father and son physicians, resided at the old Victorian home in Middleburg, New York, for over a hundred years. Many question if they never left. The Tri-City New York Paranormal Society uses the house as a training ground, regularly scheduling events such as paranormal investigations or Victorian post-mortem photography. A walking tour of the house takes you through period rooms and stocked cabinets. The bathroom contains original toiletries, including a bottle of toilet water favored by <laughs> Ursula Best. Some folks claim to still smell violets in the house. The kitchen holds tins of 100-year-old cornstarch and fruitcake, but also serves as the transition from private home to medical offices. Surgical instruments appear at the ready on a kitchen table next to medical gadgets that suggest the doctors are willing to try cutting-edge techniques, some more outlandish than others. 
Dr. Christopher Best was an innovator who was instrumental in bringing phone service to the region, and the family was the first to have indoor plumbing in Middleburg. The collection features several interesting items, including one of the original x-ray machines from the era of Madame Curie. So, um, that's definitely interesting. Next is Beekman 1802 in Schoharie. Ten minutes before closing, two women dressed in nightgowns and bonnets entered the shop and announced that she is with you. The shop attendant never saw them leave and to this day can only imagine that they were the ghosts who perished in the fire of 1911. Today, the brightly lit artisanal homeware shop made famous by Gay Green Acres, the fabulous Beekman Boys reality TV show, seems an unlikely place to find ghosts, but you never know. So the next, uh, we're going to tell uh, some stories from the Schoharie area. Um, the first one is called Ghost Boy. Frida Saddlemeyer, octogenarian, lived on Zimmer Road in 1925 in the town of Wright in the northern part of New York State's Schoharie County. In a recent interview, Frida reminisced about the old inn, which had sheltered stagecoach passengers since the mid-1850s. A regular visitor to their home was Mrs. Spate Holtz, a nice neighbor who came for coffee and conversation with Frida's mother. She often mentioned her son Otto, who had died suddenly of illness at age six about five years before. But he still comes to see me, Mrs. Spates, Holt had ventured. I hear a knock at the door, open it, and there he is, standing there, asking for something to eat. But how could he, my mother asked. He died of pneumonia five years ago, you told me that. But old Mrs. Spate Holtz always, act, always spoke as if she'd just finished talking with her son. To her, he was son, somehow still alive. Four years after that conversation, my father bought the old Spatesholt farm and they moved away. Without a son to do chores, the Spatesholts hadn't been able to keep up the farm. Mrs. Spatesholt's husband was overworked and depressed. Farm prices were dropping and the depression was starting. Those were hard times for us all. I remember that our family moved into the new house on a cold winter's day, and we moved our belongings in a large sleigh. We piled all our belongings on it. It took us several trips. Our new house was large and white. Attached to the back was a rough structure called the woodshed with a crude upstairs room. When we finally got settled, mother allowed me to go into the front parlor. Immediately, I felt the boy's presence. Later, I learned that his wake had been held there. His small coffin was placed on sawhorses while the neighbors paid their respects. But that first day around dusk, I saw him dressed in all white, floating in the air, with his forefinger pointed towards me. I was terrified and ran upstairs. When I got to my room, I pushed a chair under the doorknob so he couldn't get in. I was ten at that time. Another time, when I was playing in that room over the woodshed, I found a small wooden train, which must have been Otto's. Again, I could feel him, as if he was happy I could play with his train. That's the last time I remember feeling him close. For years afterward, as long as I lived there, when we knew he was around, everyone could feel him, and I guess he's still there. The last time I talked with Frida... She was still enjoying life. She volunteers at the Byrne Library and serves as a living encyclopedia for those curious about early residents in life in the Hill County, Hill Country of the Helderberg Mountains. Interesting. So the next one's called Ethel's House, and it has to do with a militia related to the Schoharie area. 
David, Frank, and Brian sauntered down the abandoned road in the hill country overlooking North Blenheim, New York, toward the old farmstead home of Ethel Wood, a deceased school teacher. Forty years after her death, David's family had bought it as a summer camp. Now the three headed there for a relaxing weekend. You had to enter through the side door because the front door wouldn't open, explained Frank. When we unlocked the door, something flew past my head. Ugh, that spooked me and I ran outside. David laughed at me and said, that's nothing. Such stuff goes on all the time. Eventually, I went back in and we sat at the table. Whoosh, off went the tablecloth. I picked it up. A minute later, whoosh, the tablecloth flew off again. We decided to leave it off. That night at 9.30, as we sat at the kitchen table, all the cupboard doors opened at once. Someone said the word ghost, and we laughed, rationalizing it must have been a breeze. Then at 10 p.m., the deadbolt kitchen door swung open. Nobody was there. We had had enough for one day, so we went to bed. In the kitchen the next night, I looked towards the stairway where a single electric bulb hung on a cord. The light suddenly switched itself on. I went over and examined it. The switch was a red and black push-through type, and the black was in, indicating off. I pushed the red in to the on position and then pushed it back. Now I knew the switch was off. A few minutes after I returned to my seat at the table, it turned itself on again. Finally, we just unscrewed the light bulb. The kitchen door opened, and Brian came in from outside. Hey, David, he called out. Who owns the cows? Brian, there aren't any cows. The place hasn't been farmed for decades. Well, you better come look. There are a couple of Holsteins in the lower pasture, Brian said assuredly. Brian and David went to the porch and looked into the lower pasture where more of the land, more of the open land had turned to scrub brush. No, not a cow in sight. Brian returned to the kitchen and sat in a chair shaking his head, sure that someone was playing tricks on him. None of the three had forgotten that weekend full of surprises. <laughs> Eventually, each man went on his own way. David married and continued to bring his family to the old farmhouse for a few weeks each summer. His children all have special memories of the old house. His sons, Dan and David, once saw a greenish light shining under the bathroom door, though that room had been barred and unused for years. Nowadays, everyone uses the outhouse, which has led to some humorous experiences. When the youngest bought when the youngsters brought a friend to spend the weekend, they neglected to warn about the ghost. On arrivals, as the others went into the old farmhouse, the young friend dashed to the outhouse. In a few minutes, he appeared with an ashen face at the back door, his trousers <laughs> around his ankles. I went in, and I sat down. I latched the door, but suddenly it swung open. Maybe it's a breeze, I thought. I latched it again. Just a minute later, the latch moved, and it opened. Once more, I latched it, but when it unlocked itself for the third time, I ran to the house as fast as I could, he said, while buckling his belt. Haunted outhouse stories seem to be rare. We've never been scared in Ethel's house, said David's daughter, Kim. Even though the dark front bedroom has a single shuttered window, I always felt love and warmth there. David's wife remembered the time her earring disappeared from her bedroom dresser. They were never found. On another occasion, she was making the bed and saw the imprint of a body suddenly form on the sheets as if someone had suddenly laid down. She left the bed unmade that day and inspected it closely at bedtime. Once in 1983, when most of the family was shopping, teenagers David and Kim sat talking in the living room in which the front windows were blocked. 
They heard men talking and the conversation grew louder as if a group was approaching. Unable to view them directly, the old farm unable to view directly the old farm road out front, they went to the living room's uphill window and looked out. They saw a group of men in three cornered hats approaching. Most had no real uniform, but all carried muskets slung from a strap or carried across the shoulder. Kim remembers seeing them stop and form a line facing the house. They saluted. Then the soldiers or hunters moved in front of the house into their blind spot. The two teens raced to the downhill window in time to see the troop move past the old barn and disappear. Both admitted they'd never been great history students in school, but to this day they maintain they saw Revolutionary War soldiers, perhaps the Schoharie County Militia, still marching. This encounter gave them a new appreciation for the house and the land it stands on. Later, they found a stone in the cellar with 1820 carved into it, but wonder if the house doesn't date from the 1700s. Every summer, some family members still make it back to Ethel's house. Occasionally, Ethel's house kitchen cabinets continue to pop open on schedule and the kitchen door occasionally opens itself at the appointed hour. Those These seem to have been an important times in Ethel's daily life and they think that she doesn't want something as simple as her death to deter her from her chores. They suspect that she not only serves as hostess to those who summer there, but keeps up her teaching duties, arranging with soldiers from the spirit world to help her provide history lessons to the young. And then lastly, we're going to move over to Central Bridge. This one's called the Girl in White. Pat plumber and handyman was fixing my sink when he discovered my ghost book nearby. It didn't take him long to offer a tale from his own experience. He once rented an old farmhouse off Junction Road in Central Bridge, New York in the mid-1980s. It looked as if it had been built in colonial times. Exploring the old barn, he found dates from the 1700s carved into its timbers. An elderly neighbor told him the building had a ghost. Maybe I'll see, was his jocular response. But he didn't have long to wait. On his first morning, having coffee at the kitchen table, looking out towards the barn and enjoying the orchard's apple blossoms, he rose to answer the phone. When he returned, his cup of coffee was moved. I knew where I'd set it down when I got up, and cups do not usually move themselves. He remembered his neighbor's warning. Later that afternoon, while searching for something in the cold cellar, he saw movement from the corner of his eye. A young woman in a white nightgown standing with her hand outstretched. Ugh. It didn't feel strange, even though I knew I was alone in the house. It was as if she just wanted to give or receive something. Then she just wasn't there. I didn't see her fade away. She just vanished. That is... No, I could not handle that. On another occasion going up the front stairs, he saw her standing with a book in her hand, ready to enter a bedroom near the top stair. By then, I understood what she was. 17 to 21 years of age, a pretty ghost with long hair, from floor to floor too. The stairs have a creak as you step on them, and I'd often hear her going upstairs while I watched television at night. Her favorite place, though, seemed to be the kitchen, almost as if she enjoyed waiting on me. Every day she moved my coffee cup as if to teach me the etiquette of some earlier time in history. On one occasion, I invited friends from New Jersey to spend a weekend with me. There were plenty of bedrooms. These were city people, so I warned them about the nice ghost girl. They all laughed and went to bed. About 2 or 3 a.m., I heard screams. Rushing to their bedroom, I found the woman jabbering about people talking and laughing in her room. Well, it's not as if I hadn't warned them. 
At least several times each week, Pat had to turn the front stairway light off in the morning, though he always turned it off when he was going to bed at night. Before I moved away, I saw her one last time, entering the room on the right at the top of the stairs. Today it is a bathroom, but it is clear that it was once a bedroom. I miss her. She was a quiet presence that sometimes made me think I was living with people from somewhere back in history. Now Pat lives in a small nearby city, but he often thinks of his girl in white and wonders if she's now tending to the new owners. So that is it for our little Cobra skill. Let's go Harry, Middleburg, Central Bridge, little little area uh, tour. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I got my information today from Ghosts of the Northeast by David J. Pitkin, one of my favorite books. I also got my information from the Haunted History Trail of New York State, the Bull's Head Inn, cobleskill.com, excuse me, and getawaymavens.com. So yeah, so on that wintry note, one last cheers and sip of my delicious ale. And uh, yeah, I hope you guys have a wonderful uh, rest of your week, wintry week, and I will see you next week. And on that note, happy haunting.